Hey, it's episode number 13 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Thien. On this week's program, I'm joined by my friend Andy Budd, one of the founders of the British design agency ClearLeft. Recently, he organized a conference called Leading Design, and so we discuss what it takes to be a leader in design-driven companies and what it's like in companies that aren't. I hope you enjoy it. You know what? I think you are the first guest on this podcast that is in my time zone. Wow. Fantastic. I feel honored. Yeah, I know. To be honest, it's a lot easier (laughs) without having to do all the math, uh, (laughs) uh, GMT plus or minus whatever. So yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. And and the question I have for you is what is the deal with it getting dark at like 345 here in the UK? Nobody told told me that (laughs) happened. I yeah I I kind of um I, I've never really considered that I guess I guess in California you're a little bit sort of further south and so I guess yeah. it gets dark later yeah welcome to welcome to Great Britain in some regards at least we're not in kind of the real north of kind of Scandinavia where it will be dark in some places it's dark the whole of the you know the whole of the day well, yeah. you know pretty much yeah. but yeah it's kind of tough um I think that's probably why we're sort of you know such a kind of a slightly cynical bunch and why we're <laughs> Why, why we're kind of constantly going on about the weather because yeah it's you know the, the winter's a little bit tough and dark and yeah you want to get out and get as much sun as possible so yeah i'd never really considered that it would be a, a weird experience for you coming over because i'm guessing i'm guessing in new york it must be the same we're on a similar latitude so i guess it gets dark you, no i think i think london's even farther north i don't know uh i should i should look at a globe or something but it did it caught it caught me by surprise uh, it was a couple couple weeks ago when the clocks went back it occurred to me the next day that I have no clocks that I need to manually set anymore <laughs> at all, anywhere in my life. And so literally that Sunday, I didn't kind of didn't realize it. Like I woke up a little early well rested and, and kind of forgot that this was the week because it's different here in the UK mm. than it is in the US. And so, you know, I'm with my kids and we're out um, and I'm suddenly like, why is it? It's 3.30. Why is the sun setting? So I, you know, just missed it. But <laughs> I miss most things when it comes to scheduling and well, I, stuff like that. I, I, I quite look forward to a, a future sometime in the not too distant future where I don't have to go around and set clocks. Most of my things are automatic, but with the cooker in my house, you know, I guess there was a trend of, you know, when digital displays were cheap, you just put a digital display on everything. everything. So I've got a digital display on my cooker, on my hob, and that isn't kind of synced or, or anything. So, yeah, that's the only thing I think now that I've had to kind of change. But pretty much everything else is automatic, which is quite nice. Um, but, yeah, no, the weird thing I find with the clocks going back is it does take your brain and body at least two or three weeks to kind of catch up. So I know that you maybe don't have the same kind of sort of nine to five kind of office rhythm that, that I do and many of the folks at my company do. Um, but one of the things I noticed, like the first couple of weeks of like it being autumn and, and the clock's going back, is people kind of start leaving early, not just because they forget, just because it's, oh, it's dark, it must be time to go home. And then suddenly realise, hold on, it's only like four o'clock, what's going on? And that sort of slowly resets. But it is kind of interesting kind of watching it come in and watching behavior change. It seems like a relic of the past too. But yeah. um, we, we could probably rant for an hour about daylight savings time. and Maybe we'll, we'll skip that for now. I think so. <laughs> but we, uh, we were hanging out, how long ago was that? Just a couple, three weeks ago at your leading design conference. Absolutely. That you had at the Barbican. That was, a, that was an awesome choice. Yeah. So we chose to have it in the Barbican, um, partly because, I mean, it's a great location. It's in East London. It's near where all of the 
design agencies and kind of creative studios are. It's got a real iconic sort of status amongst kind of design geeks in the city. Um, you know, it's one of these sort of classic sort of brutalist buildings. And it's a mixed venue. It's an arts venue. So there's um, performance spaces, there's cinema, and there's they've got some kind of great um, auditoriums for conferences. And so loads of designers love it. Weirdly, I'm not a huge fan of the Barbican. Um, I've never been a massive fan of sort of brutalist architecture. No, me either. And I actually find it really, I mean, as the name suggests, it's often quite, in some regards, quite brutal to kind of human living. Like, I believe that the um, accommodation spaces in the Barbican are wonderful, like multi-height kind of spaces and really, really great to actually be in the rooms. But navigating around the place is, 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 is an absolute nightmare. It's lots of blind turns. It's lots of long corridors. There isn't great signage. And so I find it quite ironic that we would have a, a design conference aimed at people who spend their whole life trying to make sense of, of digital space and give great directions and kind of like make their designs human and humane in a space that has that kind of slightly brutalist kind of attitude. And I think a lot, I mean, I'm not a huge um, sort of, I don't have a huge lot of knowledge about kind of brutalist architecture, but a lot of it seemed to be around making statements. Yeah. Kind of, you know, a lot of architecture itself is about kind of, it's less about the people inhabiting the space and more about what the space says about the city and, and the world and politics. And and I find that really you know, juxtaposed with, you know, our desire to kind of, take the friction away and really think about how people ex- yeah, inhabit that space and use the space. So every time I've been to the Barbican, I've, I've been lost. Yeah. Literally, like I can't find my way back out. And even in the center itself, not the residential area, but like the performing arts center, the floors don't all match up. You know, you have to go to the fourth and a half floor to get into <laughs> part. I don't know. It's, it is from a wayfinding perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think you had a little bit of almost cynical humor there, putting a bunch of designers in a place that's almost impenetrable from a navigation yeah, point of absolutely. view, which is awesome. You know, the brutalism, I think, what, it, it's interesting. There's probably a lot of parallels to what we've done on the web. I think it came from a kind of a post-war. Uh, there's some new materials. We're going to be true to those materials. So that real raw, like, you know, we're not decorating anymore. This is modernism. Mm. Um, we're not going to spend time on frivolity. It's only going to be... Like, you know, the uh, machines for living, yeah. right? Which in retrospect is just completely misguided. This idea that you could figure out a system from the very beginning, build it all, pour it all in concrete, and then have people come in and kind of adapt to it, mm. when in fact most great architecture is the opposite way around, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing that kind of I, I sort of, I don't really enjoy about that kind of style of architecture is... It imposes the will of the designer on the users. It says, to use this space, you have to behave in this way, rather than, I think, the better spaces understand the user's needs and allow the user... The, the space to adapt to the user and so it's quite it's quite egocentric form of design and it's quite a um, utopian form of design because it assumes almost like you know what what web design used to be 10 years ago that if you build it and you design it in a certain way people will follow your rules well, what ends up happening we know people will find workarounds people will um break this this perfectly designed system because people are messy and human humanity is messy that's right and so yeah it's that inhuman quality um that kind of um i struggle with but but it's interesting like the barbican also reminds me of there's a really famous mall i think maybe one of the first malls in in the u.s in san diego um and it has a similar quality where it's got multiple levels and you can see 
on one level where you need to get to, but it's actually impossible to get there because you've got to go up a bunch of stairs, then down an escalator and then around and you get horribly lost. And that's the same with the Barbican. You're standing on one level and you can see, oh, I want to go to the coffee shop over there. I want to go to the bookshop. But it's impossible to find your way because there's no direct path from one to the other. You, your line of sight is indicating that you should be able to make that move. Right. But it's not been designed to allow you to do that. You can't get there from here. No. <laughs> That's right. So interesting. This is interesting. Uh, I think I've spoken on the podcast before about uh, Christopher Alexander and mm. the Pattern Library. You're probably familiar with that. Uh -huh. That book was written as a result of his work at the University of Oregon, I think, mm -hmm. because of a sort of a student revolt against the brutalist architecture there. They're like, this doesn't work, and now they want to build more buildings. And so they brought in this guy who really went from a much more human bottoms-up approach than this top-down, here's the vision for what everything should be. So that piece of work I found very inspiring, the pattern language. Mm. Interesting that it was this, this sort of brutalism that, that brought it there. I mean, the other thing about the pattern language is, is weirdly, it's sort of been, it's been neglected in architecture. And it took the web and it took the digital world to kind of pick it up because he's not very well respected amongst other architects. It was kind of like a sidelined thing. And then, you know, a bunch of developers and designers discovered it and thought this was genius. And so, you know, everything's pattern libraries and pattern languages now. And I think people forget yep. where it came from. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But anyway, back to your conference, very successful. You seem to be kind of right at the zeitgeist of what's happening in design leadership. Um, that's, that's really kind of you to say so. The reason we run conferences is in part because I guess it's scratching one's own itch. Um, I guess it's also because ClearLeft is an agency. So I run an agency called ClearLeft. And we've always been about um, trying to push the practice of digital design forwards. I think, you know, one of the reasons I came across you, one of the reasons we know each other is because I felt a really strong kinship from particularly a lot of your early writings that you did at, um, at kind of um, Wired sort of WebMonkey and also at Adaptive Pass. So I think there's always yeah. been a strong kinship between the agency you founded many, many years ago and, and ClearLeft. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so one of the things we've always wanted to do is find opportunities to have that dialogue and to push the practice forward. Because I guess from our perspective, if, if we can educate you know, clients and other developers and, and make everyone better at what we're doing. You've got the whole standing on the shoulders of giants effect, you know, it makes everyone's lives better and it makes our lives better. And I think the conference came from lots of conversations with people like you, lots of conversations with friends and peers, people who maybe I'd met 10 years ago at South by Southwest. And when I met them, they were design practitioners. And then Maybe they, they moved jobs and they were running a small team and then maybe they moved jobs again and they're running a bigger, bigger team. And over the years, um, they've sort of fallen into a leadership role. And many of these people have not had any formal lead, I mean, a leadership training. Like, I don't think I know a single designer um, or at least very few designers that have like got an MBA or any kind of sort of business qualification. Most of us come from being practitioners and kind of wander into leadership and management. And I was just having the same conversations over and over again with my friends, people struggling to, to find the right talent. And then when they found the right talent to retain them, when they've got that talent, how they help people grow in their careers and how they create space in the organization that great people can do great work, how they work with other leaders in the field, how they work with their peers in the organization that maybe don't have that understanding for design. Um, and also sort of managing upwards as well. So, you know, mm, there's a lot of yeah. talk around like getting a seat at the table. But once you've got a seat at the table, once you're in the board level, how do you actually 
um, argue your case when maybe you're running a design department of five, 10, 20 people, but the, the, the tech team have got a headcount of two or 300, the marketing team have got 50 or 60. Sure. So how do you kind of actually so have those conversations and, and get design taken seriously? And so after kind of a few years of having the same conversation with Bologna over again, it just felt like now was a really good time to bring a whole bunch of smart people in a room and have that conversation. And so we got, you know, we got yourself up to, to speak. We got leaders from various companies like Spotify and and people that have worked in sort of Google and Facebook and traditional tech companies, but also people that have worked at the BBC and, and John Lewis and, and, and kind of um, more traditional companies to kind of really sort of thrash those things around. Let's take that apart just a little bit. Why do you think it's now, right? Because I totally agree that this, this discussion about design leadership and who these people are and, and uh, their impact in the organization, as you said, is something we were not talking about seven or eight years ago. Mm. It feels like it has been relatively recent that perhaps business has seen the need, mm -hmm. or perhaps it's more kind of generational that people who did digital design for the web and then for apps and things like that simply didn't exist you know, with enough time to build a career that they can take a, a director or mm -hmm. VP uh, or, or higher position at most organizations. So I don't know which one of those it is, but I wonder why it is now. Well, I think, I mean, I think you've highlighted a whole bunch of reasons. And, I, you know, in, in this kind of sort of the age we live in, there's never really one deciding factor. There's a whole bunch of things that feed into it. I think it was right in the UK now, partly because I think in the UK and Europe, we lag behind the US by a little bit. Or we, we at least lag behind California by four or five years. So, you know, for instance, Adaptive Path started in what, 2001? Do they have it right? 2000. Um, clearly, I started in 2005. I think, uh, you know, the MX Conference Adaptive Path run has probably been going for what, six or seven years now? Yeah. I yeah. think this event that I ran is probably the, the logical uh, kind of European version of MX, you could argue. It's a slightly different kind of um, slant. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think partly the time lag is because, you know, the UK, we are sort of lagging behind sort of some of the um, stuff that's happening in the States. And I think that's partly because in America, a lot of innovation in design and technology has come from kind of, you know, sort of... Um, uh, pure play, born of the internet companies. And, and that, that springs out of Silicon Valley. And, and once that kind of springs out, it kind of affects other companies in the country. And then slowly it kind of starts to work its way around the world and kind of filter into companies in, in England and the rest of Europe. So I think we are sort of slowly catching up. I think there is a generational thing. You know, the people that I know in the US that have had leadership roles, like yourself, have had them for four, five, six years. You know, we've got lots of mutual friends that are VPs and CDOs and have that level of seniority in the US. We have amazing friends. You we, we do, we do. <laughs> um, and, and, and the people that don't have that title or those levels, you know, are amazing as well. But I think in the UK, I'm seeing that, that we, we're not there yet. You know, we're not having those kind of senior hires. We're having hires in the UK where they still are reporting to the head of marketing or the head of IT, and they may be two or three levels down. So I think a lot of people in England and Europe are looking at models that are having like happening in the US and kind of trying to um, sort of replicate them. But I think, again, it's generational. Again, it's a cultural thing. I've long held the belief that individuals typically don't change their beliefs. You know, your beliefs are set in your, your, your 20s and 30s 
And then for you know, your 40s and 50s, unless you're really unique, you end up kind of working within the kind of um, the constraints of your belief system. And organizations change not because individuals are really good at changing, but because those individuals with very fixed beliefs retire and a new range of management and leadership kind of come up the channel. And we're seeing this with things like GDS in the UK. GDS has been a success um, where maybe similar um, uh, sort of initiatives failed 5, 10, 15 years ago, in part because we have those leaders now, in part because we have people uh, you know, like Tom and, and, and all those guys um, that have you know, worked at the BBC and worked at Channel 4 and gained their credibility and gained their stars. And so when they are finally asked to put a, you know, be put in a place of authority and leadership, suddenly they enact change and then the, the, the rest of the organisation comes along. And so, yeah, so I think, you know, sadly, organisations don't mature. People just retire and younger people with better ideas come and take their place. Now, if that is true, then what that means is you and I will be the blockers of our organisations in 10 to 20 years. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Capto from Global Delight. There's a school in Melbourne, Australia called the Wibera Valley Grammar School that has about 1,200 students. The faculty there is regularly trained with new developments of their learning management system. To make this possible, the school uses Capto on all of its Macs. Capto is a powerful screen capturing, recording, and editing app. And the developers of Capto are proud to know that their software makes these things possible. Capto helps these teachers create learning tools and systems, enabling them to educate. People use their Macs for all different purposes. Some of us write code, do video editing, develop websites, or create presentations. And every once in a while, we come across the need for capturing the screen, recording it, and then editing it. Capto helps you capture a full screen, a part of your screen, or even an entire web page. You can easily edit, add annotations, numbers, arrows, and much more. Capto can also let you record yourself in parallel to the screen recording so that you can make your tutorial videos and how-to videos with just a few clicks. And all of this comes packed in an app that's been designed for ease of use. And as an added bonus, Capto also features iOS recording helping you record the screens of your iOS devices with ease. So if you want a screen capturing, recording, and editing app that's efficient, powerful, and time-saving, I'm pretty sure Capto is what you're looking for. Okay, so here's how you can get the app and find out more. Go to captoformac.com. That's C-A-P-T-O-F-O-R-M-A-C.com. Capto costs just $29.99, but as a special offer to listeners of Presentable, you can use the coupon code PRESENT and you'll get 30% off. CaptoformAct.com. The code is PRESENT, 30% off. Thank you so much to Capto and Global Delight for supporting Presentable and for supporting Relay FM. It is still, though, these companies like, like John Lewis and, and whatnot here in the UK uh, and many, many in the United States as well, I think, are still hiring and thinking of design leadership as people to run and manage a design organization in the company, mm -hmm. as opposed to bringing designers in as leaders of the business. Yep. You, you see that sort of that nuance. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is this idea of design as a process for deciding what to build. And that's very different than, so we, you and I, I think, spent a lot of years in our career doing that process of matching the needs of the business to the needs of the user. And in between there is a user experience process that works really well for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking now of sort of a next level of that, rather than the needs of the business being these immovable things that come down from the boardroom, instead designers participating as leaders in the business to define what those needs are. 
to define what the business model is and what the overall offering should be, let alone the how and the why and, or the how and the what we're yeah. going to build, right? No, I mean, I, I, just, I, think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I think, I think this sort of, um, this comes from a change in, in, in kind of the way that we do business. I think it used to be the case um, in the early days, particularly in digital, um, it was just about building capability. And when you're just building capability, you know, you don't have to worry so much about whether the people using the service or customers really like it, because if there's nothing else out there that serves that need, even if it's badly designed, even if it's clunky, it's better than, than not being able to use that tool or that service. And so the old ways of delivering, you know, large software projects and indeed delivering sort of um, value to your customers was basically this idea that we just, you know, we dictate these new features and then you as a consumer go and you know use use them i think what's happened is over the last 10 years development has started to become a bit of a commodity uh customers and consumers don't just want features they want a service they want a product they want an experience this whole idea joseph pine talks about the experience economy that we're moving from products to services to experiences and when you want to have experiences when you want to have brand experiences when you want to um, have a service experience. Um, it's not just about the nuts and bolts of what you deliver. It's about how it is delivered. And in that instance, I think designers play a massive role of not being, you know, not becoming short order chefs and doing what the business tells them to do and then inflicting that onto the users. What they actually do is they kind of they switch that around and they become the people that go out into the field to understand what the market actually needs, what the market actually wants. They interpret that then to the organization. They propose to the organization how that should be delivered. And then the organization now signs off on that based on its ability to deliver certain business outcomes. And so I think there definitely has been a, a switch around there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm wondering about that, that idea of uh, development being commoditized and wondering if that has happened to some degree just lower down in the stack in that things that used to be hard are easy now and very inexpensive. Therefore, it's much easier to be able to be a competitor to an incumbent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the kind of weird thing. I mean, this is what you see happening in the UK at the moment with all of these challenger banks. You've got banks in the UK that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years that have so much technical debt. It's it's crazy. You know, these systems are built on systems that were designed in the 60s. You know, there are banks in the UK now that, un, you know, the underpinnings of their service are still built in COBOL. Um, so, you know, there's so much technical debt that it slows everything down. If you are building a bank, you know, from the ground up these days, you don't have to have any of those problems. So you can, you can, you know, you can build something really, really fast, really, really efficiently on a really super lean team. And once you've been able to deliver that, then you don't have to worry about whether something's technically feasible. You have to then start worrying about whether it's something that's delightful, whether it's something that is usable, whether it's something that um, meets your, 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 your customers' goals. And at the same time, I think what the, the, the internet has done, it used to be the case that you, if you worked in a particular sector, you only had to worry about what your competitors in the sector were doing. So, you know, if you ran a bank, as long as you were kind of like, you know, not too different from your other banking buddies, you know, people were sort of locked in and they didn't have to really worry about that. Um, but nowadays, people um, have experiences of like software 
um, you know, on a range of devices. You know, they're used to kind of downloading apps and playing games on their iPhone. They're used to kind of using often fairly well-designed software at work. So people are not just judging you based on other banks they've used. People are judging you on every single service experience they've ever had. And if they find you wanting, and if, you know, particularly banking, that's a sector that's lacking, um, that, that opens up a massive gap where these new challenger sort of banks can come in and not compete just on the delivery of, you know, these services like, oh, we can give you a loan, we can give you a, a credit card, we can give you a checking account, but we can give you an experience that meets your day-to-day requirements that you can gain intelligence and, and learn about your finances and, and and give you these sort of powers that these other, other banks aren't able to do. And I think that extends across all of the other kind of sectors at the moment. You're talking about service design, really, right? And one of the things that I've been, you know, I've been, I had a conversation just last week with a founder of a startup, maybe a twenty-person company, and he quite quite interested in this this whole notion of of service design. And I said, you know, it's really interesting in that I think service design came from this idea of large organizations completely siloed in all of their departments, unable to to communicate with each other effectively and having that exposed to customers. And a bank is a perfect example where you you call the 1-800 number and, and the person on the other end not only asks for your account number four times through the phone tree, mm. but doesn't use the same language that's on your bill. And that's different again from what's on the website. And it's just this like, I don't even know what's going on here. And it has been smaller companies that don't have the burden of tens of thousands of employees in silos that can provide a better experience because communication is easier for smaller groups of people. Mm-hmm. And and that's, I think, another, there's this technological trend uh, that you mentioned, but I think that's that's a big part of it as well, is that these these companies are smaller at the moment and therefore able to be more nimble. Oh, absolutely. And when you, when you see these kind of um, tech companies in Silicon Valley that, you know, five, six, seven years ago were small and nimble, now being large behemoths with, you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, they do start to creak and they start to slow down and that opens up space for other challenges. So I do think I do think there are levels of maturity and smaller, younger companies can be faster. I think there's a, there's a couple of other things that you sort of mentioned which I wanted to pick up on. I think um, I, I think what's happened, particularly with with large organisations, is they sort of they never had to worry about the server again going back to what i said earlier they never had to worry really about the quality of service they they had to deliver what their goal was particularly traditional organizations was about marketing so you look at most traditional organizations and they had a massive marketing department because what they wanted to do is they wanted to get their services in front of users and you have really sophisticated marketing teams that paint a picture of what an experience of using their product would look like a classic example is i sign up for Um, a telephone service that comes bundled with internet and TV. And, you know, the TV ads and, you know, the the marketing collateral paints this picture of a beautiful integrated service with, you know, just, you know, just one bill, one payment. and, And that all sounds great. The challenge is then when you join, you suddenly realize you're being invoiced, billed by three different entities within the business one entity is, is invoicing you for internet on a quarterly basis one is in, invoicing you for you for the phone on a monthly basis one is invoicing you per usage in packaging for your tv company like usage you get a problem and you phone up one number and they say well i'm sorry we can't help you because actually we're a different business and you need to go and use this phone number and won't even put you in touch you know won't even kind of transfer you and what ends up happening is 
these companies are selling a vision of an experience that or a service that is actually not true. It's fundamentally broken. And I think now the consumers are starting to kick back and saying, well, hold on, we've spent money based on you giving me this service promise and you're not delivering. And if you're not going to deliver, we're going to look elsewhere. And so I think we are moving out of the, the, the age of marketing and we are moving into the age of service and experience design. Um, in terms of you know whether this is service experience design, I think this is you know pot- potentially a semantic sort of discussion. Um, but it's an interesting one because you know ultimately you know there's this idea that there are kind of like four orders of design, and first order design is basically the aesthetics. You know what something looks like. It's kind of graphic design effectively, right. and that's where most people stop when they think of design. That it's the the, the visual implementation. Second order design kind of feeds more into kind of product design. It's not only what the thing looks like, but how it feels to use it. It's the it's the sort of the feel of, you know, turning the volume up on a really nice built stereo. It's the sound of like a really well built car door closing in like in the web and on apps. It's it's really the thing we've been referring to as the physics model, right? The way things move in and out of the screen and pop up and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean I think I think definitely that second order design when it comes to the web and digital is motion design and 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 sound design. Yeah, it's that it's that kind of dynamic feeling. And particularly I think motion design has got super popular understandably over the last 3 or 4 years as people move to mobile phones and and and, and mobile devices and devices with smaller screens there isn't as much real estate. And so you have to get clever to, to sort of demonstrate affordances and, and, and hint at how the device should work when, when you, know, you have to kind of hide things off screen and in various places. Third order design is the interaction design when you're designing processes and flows of people using a system. And fourth order design is when you're designing things that are really intangible. So you're designing culture, you're designing um, uh, behavior. And so I think... Interaction design or user experience design at its peak and at its um, most professional is somewhat indistinguishable from service design. And I think that's how um, it was intended in the, in the first instance. If you talk to Don Norman about his belief of what UX design would be when he sort of founded that team in Apple, it was to kind of join up these silos. It was to join what the experience was like of using the software with what it was like using the hardware, with what it was like unboxing it and, and, and kind of using the kind of connected services. So I think effectively what we've got is we're living in a world now where, you know, and UX design, you know, that might have been the vision for UX design, but UX design traditionally has been very digitally focused. And so I think UX design has come from a world of, of bits and bytes and digital interactions. And the service design world comes from the world of physical interactions, often um, delivering services at kiosks at check-ins at airports at kind of you know service desks for 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 local council workers Um, but as more and more services are delivered digitally and as more and more digital things have a service layer i think those two communities are joining i think the other thing is that you know what you tend to find is the service world really started and was real gained in prominence in Europe. It, it, and it comes from, if you go to services design conferences, the bulk of the conversations come from delivering services for the public sector. So it's like how you design um, uh, the provision of healthcare services, how you design the provision for um, uh, unemployment services. And so a big bulk of the work that service designers do in the UK and Europe comes from 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 the public sector. 
And UX design tend, tend to sort of stem from the tech world and the delivery of, of digital products and services. And so you're, at the moment, we're seeing these two kind of streams merge and you know, interesting results are kind of happening at the moment. But you're right, it's high order design. It's looking at design across touch points. It's looking at journeys across touch points. It's trying to figure out where the services are failing and trying to improve those areas to make sure that everyone has a great experience. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really well put. What do you um, why don't we talk a little bit about the sort of the, how we accomplish this sort this stuff uh, for people who might be finding themselves in their careers stepping into leadership roles or or management roles or some combination of the two. Did you see anything in the either the conversations you had or or the presentations at, at the conference that you did around the way design leaders are tackling those sorts of problems in organizations where that might be new thinking? It's a really tricky one. Um, I mean, I, I, to be completely honest, one of the reasons that I write about topics or talk about topics or run conferences around topics is because it's a way that I can kind of learn as I go as well. So I wouldn't like to pretend that I am this genius, you know, know all of the answers to the problems of design leadership. I think one of the reasons I put the event on is because I wanted to kind of get better at this stuff. So I don't think there's a golden bullet, but I think there are behaviours and practices that stem from the behaviours and practices of designers that you can that you have typically used to solve tangible problems, whether they're physical designs or interface designs, that you can use those same thought processes and, and activities and practices to solve um, cultural problems. And so I think this is getting into the world of service design. And I think, you know, if you talk to a lot of design leaders, and when I kind of jokingly ask, like, when was the last time you did any proper design? The answer will often be, well, actually, I am still doing design now, but I'm doing it at a meta level. I'm not designing interfaces, but I'm designing uh, team communication flows. I'm designing um, how my my group communicates to each other and how they um, communicate the value that they have to the rest of the organization. And so, you know, design at that meta level is still is still a form of design. And so, I think I think there are a number of um, techniques that that you can use. I think a really easy one, and I think one that, that GDS have done fantastically to kind of popularise, is this idea of getting the whole organisation in front of users on a regular basis. So it used to be the case um, in non-user-centred kind of organisations that you would have a particular research department that would go out, would gather the insight, would come back, would present their findings, and that was it. And then what would happen is people would argue over the findings. Right. And if you if you weren't in the room, if you weren't having conversations with these people, it's really easy to ignore them or to sideline them. Um, if you have a culture which regularly requires you, not just designers and not just developers, but the whole organization, even the CEO, to come in contact with your customers on a regular basis, suddenly your perception changes. Because particularly, again, you kind of get this interesting situation where you have these really smart people who's found companies maybe 10 or 20 years ago and who are holding on to their image of what customers were like 10 or 20 years ago. And when you talk to CEOs of these large companies, it might be five or 10 years and you know, since they actually talked to a real customer. Or if they talked to a customer, it was another CEO at a, a, a kind of like a, a fancy event. And so it's really easy to kind of have your vision of your customers being quite fixed. But actually, when you put people in a room 
and you show internal stakeholders, people using your tools and services, and the first time somebody uses it, they struggle. And then the second time a different person uses it, they struggle. You know, initially the, the thought was like, where did you get these stupid users from? Once you start seeing the third person, the fourth person, the fifth person struggle, suddenly light bulbs start coming over people's heads. Suddenly people start thinking, hold on, maybe it's not the stupid users. Maybe it's the tools that we've designed and we've designed them in a bad way. And suddenly people start rethinking everything about the way they make decisions. And they stop thinking about decisions as I know everything. Kind of this sort of like industrial age thinking that the the most senior person in the room knows the most about everything and has the most authority. I'm much more interested in this idea of servant leadership where you hire people smarter than you and you create a space where you allow them to do good design work and you get out or, or, or make good decisions and get out of their way. And so exposing people to this the reality of what it's like using your tools day in, day out, and the frustration that you're causing on your customers, suddenly it's impossible to escape that. And and when that happens, you see organizations, you know, jump into being user-centered and customer-centric with with a huge amount of further because they see opportunity. And so I think that's a big a, a big a big way of kind of changing that culture. Yeah, I saw uh, Jared Spool wrote about this recently. He calls it exposure hours, and the more exposure hours you have, the better the products end up being. And he's done some studies of teams that have have implemented this. I've had my own experience with that. One of the things that I noticed most profoundly was in after bringing engineers into usability sessions and having them observe them as they happened was that in product direction and product design conversations in the future, the vocabulary changed. Mm. They would refer back to, remember that woman from Florida when she was trying to whatever, right? And suddenly we're talking about an experience somebody had, therefore we should make this change as opposed to, well, I think, and I think you're wrong about, you know, the, the, the shift is, was pretty remarkable. My question though, is how especially in an established culture where you're suddenly going to tell a bunch of engineers who have a backlog a mile long, a bunch of executives whose calendars are booked up weeks in advance, that every three weeks they're going to spend four hours with users. How do we do that? (laughs) Well, I mean, this might be a kind of a sort of a slightly elitist approach or, or, or attitude, but but I would argue that that not every company or every organization deserves to exist it, it, like infinitum that deserves to kind of carry on. And I think <laughs> that's very the Darwinian of you. That's great. I know, but I think I think the companies that understand the changing landscape, understand the changing competitive nature, and are able to adapt will see huge prizes. And those organizations that are unwilling to uh, adapt. Um, will struggle and will disappear. I mean, there's loads of kind of research that shows that I think um, the average lifespan for a company now in the the S&P sort of 500 is something crazy like 15 years. Well, it used to be hundreds of years. So companies need to kind of adapt continuously in a, a quicker rate. So there is a Darwinian thing of like, well, you know, can you really force an organization to change against its will? I think the answer is no. But I think what you can do is you can find organizations where there are, are islands of willing 
and you go in and you 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 create exemplar projects you show you build small cultures within large organizations that that do really good work and hopefully the rest of the organization kind of sees what you're doing and kind of comes on board and comes on the journey but i think this also comes down to what we were saying earlier around um you do need a certain level of authority you know i i see lots of people sort of trying to tackle this problem from the the bottom up from the ground up and you need that you need organizations where you've got passionate practitioners wanting to make change but you also need the organization to have hired maybe accidentally one or two really really good people who can provide that air cover and can allow the great teams to kind of do their work and so i think the leader's role um is to and this isn't just design leaders but i think it's leaders in general is to spot the trends are to spot the directions of travel, to provide support for the teams that are doing the great work, and kind of to, to, to kind of like give them give them that cover. Um, and yeah, sure, you know, maybe you don't do, you know, maybe you don't start by mandating across the whole organization that you have to do a certain number of hours a, um, a, a week, but you prove that that has results, and then slowly you build culture. I mean, you know, one of the things that GDS do is they now do mandate um, that you have to do. Everybody has to kind of um, on a product team has to spend two hours every six weeks, and two hours every six weeks doesn't sound like a lot, you know. And if you are in that position of power now, one of the biggest design opportunities I think is in governance is not just doing great design work, but designing the way that organizations function and make decisions so you can bake some of these positive behaviors into the kind of DNA. And you, you know, if you're a designer, you know, rather than just kind of grumping or kind of huffing because the organization doesn't want to work in the way you work, offer your skills and services to design that um, that QA sign-off document or that um, discovery, you know, kind of like feature gathering form that you need to kind of fill in, you know, to send to your BAs to gather features. And if you can kind of design it in a way that prioritizes or at least gives equal priority to user needs as well as organizational needs, then suddenly the organization you know starts changing through through that governance layer so i think that's a, i think that's a big a, a big element yeah you know and i share with you that that sort of darwinian approach to it uh, as well which which has informed my own career and the decisions that i made especially this m- more recent decision of coming over <laughs> onto the investing side right the yeah. the amount of work the slow rate of change that i saw those periods of time in my career where I worked at a large organization informed this idea that the way to change big organizations is to make competing organizations that do it better. And yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. But there, there is some optimism there, it sounds like, especially as I think people with more experience from a user experience or a service design or even just capital D design background get more and more authority in organizations and can, and can help sort of enforce and mandate some of the change that's happening from the people bottom us up who really want to do that so they have, I, I i buy that i think there's i think there's something to that i think um we are starting to see design uh being talked about in a different way and in different places we're seeing design being talked about in the the lens of design thinking um, and it's not just happening now at design conferences and in design blogs and design magazines. It's appearing in Harvard Business Review. It's appearing in Fast Company. It's appearing in, um, you know, the FT and, and, and the Times and kind of traditional newspapers. And so I think you're starting to see um, uh, CTOs, CEOs, CFOs 
being exposed to this trend in design. I think, you know, when you when you were talking to sort of uh, Peter a few weeks ago, you talked about design being this kind of 20-year overnight success. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the kind of things that we've been talking about and sort of pushing our career have now seeped into the boardroom. And now I'm seeing CEOs all over the world come to companies like Clear Left and adapt, you know, well, adaptive path no more, but I guess that happened with kind of Capital One, come to, come to ages and say, we need help. You know, this is not just something that we're pushing. It's something like you have executive um, buy into because I think the executives get it now. You know, they are there are companies that are willing to kind of take take this on board. And so that winning approach, I think, is is basically around, you know, you can't change behavior in people that don't want to change you know you can't stop someone from being an alcoholic until they make the decision that they want to stop being an alcoholic and sometimes you might have to do two or three runs at it before they are really committed um and so you need the entity itself and, and particularly the leadership needs to make that decision and then you can go in and with their support and their mandate um and an understanding that this this transition takes time i mean one of the things that several people at the leading design conference said is this kind of design transformation or digital transformation if you want to look at the broader sort of arena takes between five and seven years and so that's the thing that i think is really important that that we have willing participants willing ceos that want to go on this journey but they need to realize that you're not going to change you know the direction of the ship overnight or in 18 months that it, it needs a consistent and considered kind of investment and it need, you need to be in it for the long haul but i think hiring the right people hiring good leaders building that culture exposure to users seeing design not just as embellishment but as a problem solving tool and as a business solving tool and seeing it as a way that that organizations can deliver better products and services that users and customers will want to pay money for and eventually you know see design not as a cost center but as a profit center i think that's it as soon as the ceo realizes that design adds to the bottom line i mean i was i don't know if i probably should be saying this but i chat to a friend of mine that works at a a big travel company um and when he started he was one of like six designers and now he's one of a hundred and it went from six to hundred in about four or five years because they were able to demonstrate the revenue generating um, value of, of design in the organization. And so we're seeing that happening all over the place. You make a really good point there in that there's a conversation that I have with Margaret Gould Stewart, uh, who's at Facebook on the business of Facebook doing design over there, which is to your friend's point at the travel company, they were able to show the revenue impact. They were able to speak the language of the people in charge yeah to convince them on those terms that design was effective and valuable. Yeah. Now, one of the problems with that is, you know, there's a kind of a, a kind of a weird irony here is in order to be able to um, operationalize design, in order to be able to look at designing on that strategic level, you need to have already invested as an organization enough in design that your design team are not just firefighting. Right. Because if you have a team that are overstretched, that are overworked and are, are spread too thin, they are never going to be in a position to be able to look at the stats and look at the metrics and really build a business case around design is great. So one, it's kind of one of these things like, you know, a lot of people fixate on kind of ROI is something you calculate in advance. And actually, it's not. Often ROI is a thing that you look back on and go, that was the return on our investment. You know, we, we, 
invested X when we got Y. Um, so you kind of need to build, build out that capability to get to the point that you can then measure that, the outcome of that capability to prove that what you, what you invested in design is actually paying back. And there's a lot of kind of research, particularly from um, sort of like friends of ours like Leah Bewley, that kind of believe, you know, there's done research over 100 plus organisations and found that organisations that have really high-performing design teams typically have a ratio of one designer for every four to six developers. Right. Whereas teams that are underperforming in terms of design have one designer for every 20 or 30 developers. In that situation, the designers are just treading water, and they're never going to be able to show that higher value. There are, I think, some really interesting markers that people can use to evaluate how important design is to a company, which is a great thing to do as you're you know, thinking about your next step in your career or things like that. I think the ratio between designers and developers is a really good one that you just pointed out. I think another one is who is the highest ranking person at the organization with design in their backgrounds? Mm -hmm. Like what is their title? How high up are, there? are they? I think another good one is has the company ever taken a product that met business needs and that was technically finished had they ever held that product back because the design wasn't good enough yet? Mm. That's, I think that's a really good one. That's a really good a question to ask a potential employer. Has that ever happened? And if not, why not? You know? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a brilliant question. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with all of this in, in leadership and design. And I really appreciate your time and your, uh, your willingness to share all of this and really give back through the conferences the way you do. So thanks so much, Andy. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's always a, it's always a delight to chat. So um, yeah, it is. And, and where can we find more of what you're thinking and doing? We've got uh, clearleft.com. I would imagine it's a good place to start. Absolutely. And then I'm I, I'm an occasional blogger these days on andybud.com or Medium. I'm pro it's probably just medium.com/andybud. I don't know what the URL structure is there. Um, or Twitter. You know, um, so Andy Bud on Twitter as well. So yeah, if you want to kind of connect any of those channels, and you know, I, I always love to kind of chat to new people. I also kind of run a little kind of leadership Slack channel for people that are running sort of teams Ooh. of you know, like you know, it's usually teams of like sort of like eight, ten or more people. So if any of your listeners are running teams of a decent size and want to join up, ping me, ping me an email or, or reach out on on the internet, and I'd be happy to kind of bring them into um, into that group. I think I might join as well. If oh, you're, you're not on there, yeah. crikey! No, that's a that's a that's an awful um, awful <laughs> misstep for me. So yeah, we're, we're, oh, that's okay. Uh, uh, that sounds great. That yeah. sounds really good. Uh, well, Andy, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Great. Thank you so much. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fien. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.